take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 7. We're in an ongoing study here in the book of uh, Romans. We're in chapter 7. And tonight we're coming to a portion of uh, Scripture uh, here in the book of Romans where um, probably a few sections of Scripture have caused more differing opinions amongst godly biblical scholars than the text before us. It's seen by many as perhaps the most difficult and controversial passage in the book of Romans to interpret. But I'm confident that as we work our way through the text, we can bring some clarity to it and we can come to an understanding of what Paul meant uh, by what he said. As we read the text, we're going to see someone who deeply cares about the Scripture, about the law of God. We're going to see somebody who wants to obey the law but has a, con a conflict to do the very things that he desires not to do. Somebody who is in a real deep, intense personal conflict uh, one part of him is being pulled in one direction, another part's being pulled in an opposite direction. Therefore, he's dominated by this internal conflict. But at the end, I think we'll see that um, the conflict that Paul speaks of is something that is normal to each of us, uh, every one of us, since we've come to Christ. Uh, it's a conflict we didn't know before we came to Christ, but now once we come to Christ, now that we're saved, we experience the same kind of conflict that Paul is speaking of. So start, we'll start there in verse 14, and I'll read my way down through uh, verse 25. Verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joy, joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that on one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Now, again, there's few sections of Scripture uh, over which biblical scholars have differed in interpretation as they do this section of Scripture. And the great point of contention here in this portion of Scripture is who's Paul, who is Paul talking about? Who is the man of Romans 7? And exactly who is Paul referring to when he uses the personal pronoun, the term I? Now, as long as the church has had this text, interpreters have disagreed as to whether the man described in the text is a Christian or a non-Christian. And they've asked the question, is Paul speaking about himself in this section of Scripture or someone else? If he's speaking about himself, is he speaking of his pre-conversion experience before he became a Christian, before he came to Christ? Or is he speaking about his post-conversion experience after he became a Christian? Now, some people have come along and suggested that he's not even speaking about himself. But when he uses the personal pronouns that he does over and over again, he's just using a literary device uh, to more closely identify with his readers. 
So again, the question that's up for debate is, who is the man of Romans 7? Now, no doubt it's an issue, but we need to be careful that we understand the identity of uh, the man here in this portion of Scripture, I really think, is a secondary issue. Can't overlook the fact that Paul, in his ongoing discourse, has been talking about the law, the Mosaic law. Paul still has a focus on that here in uh, the last half of chapter 7. And as I've told you previously, it's the law that reveals to us the extent of God's holiness. It's the law that sets forth God's perfect divine standard for acceptable behavior before him. Because he is the holy God. And because he's the holy God, the standard, therefore, is absolute perfection. So this is one issue that he's speaking with. At the same time, I told you, he's also speaking to us uh, about the issue of sin. The power of sin, the sinfulness of sin. The fact, as I told you previously, that apart from God himself, sin is the most powerful uh, entity in the universe. It's the greatest power in the universe. And, and I really think you need to look at it as a positive power. It's not just the absence of something. It's a positive power in the sense that it's so powerful it brings forth a result. And it brings forth the, the result that it brings forth is death. And sin is a power that dominates and rules over and enslaves every man who doesn't know Christ. So while the issue of who the man is in the chapter is an important issue and has uh, theological and practical implications, we want to make sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees, as they say, and and allow the secondary issue to become the primary issue. Now, Paul has just told us that the, the law, it cannot justify a man. And although it can't justify a man, it does indeed perform essential functions in God's economy of salvation. So what does the law do? Well, the law enlightens the conscience. The law enlightens the conscience. It arouses sin. It shows forth sin's a destructive and deceptive power. Therefore, it makes sin exceedingly sinful. And because the law arouses sin to become exceedingly sinful, it awakens the conscience to a recognition, a recognition that sin is sin. And, and the law produces a state of mind that brings forth conviction of that sin. It brings forth a knowledge of sin's nature, sin's character, and an understanding, again, of sin's power over us. Therefore, the law, when understood properly, produces a state of mind that is the necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel. Because before the gospel can ever be embraced as a means of deliverance from sin, a man has to feel his misery. A man has to feel the weight of his sin, that he is indeed part of sin's corruption, that he is indeed a sinner. Right? No man's going to see his need for a Savior until he understands that he's a sinner in need of a Savior. And again, that's kind of what I said this morning. The great thing that has been offensive uh, to uh, the natural man about the words of Christ is the fact that he says all of sin. And I've come to seek and save the lost. And men don't like that. So the law sets the standard absolutely high. It's absolute perfection. And men have to meet that standard. That's the standard of the law. So now what Paul's going to do is he's going to show the law's effects on the mind of the believer. He's already proved the fact that the law can't secure a justification. Now he's going to show that the belief to the believer uh, that it can't secure our sanctification either. And, and the reason that you can't just keep the law and get saved, the reason that you just can't keep the law and get sanctified or pro, uh, progress in the issue of sanctification is because of the power of indwelling sin. I think that's an issue that we often overlook. It's the power of indwelling sin in the believer's life. So what Paul says in this section about the law is absolutely true. No matter what we ultimately come to or what decision we make about the condition of the the man that he's speaking to in the chapter. So what does Paul say about the law? Remember the start of the chapter, people were saying that he was saying it was sin, that he was 
he was against the law. He said, no, no, that's not true. We just got to understand the right use of the law. What does he say about the law? Look at verse 12. He says, so then the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He's going to go on to verse 14 to say the law is spiritual, meaning that it has useful, uh, it's useful in spiritual purposes. Again, verse 16, the law is good. While the law is holy, the commandment holy, righteous, and good, it's spiritual. Paul says, look, but I can't do that. I can't do what that law requires. I can't do what is holy, righteous, and good. And he says, verse 15, he starts to lay that out. For I am doing what I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. And so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. If I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So he's saying, look, the law is perfect. The law has the ability to inform us of the standard of God. The law has the ability to inform us of our duties before God to come to the standard of perfection. But the law doesn't give us the ability to fulfill those duties. And I think that's important to understand. The law doesn't give us the ability to perform that duty. Duty doesn't mean ability. And some have falsely taught that what God requires that man can actually accomplish, but that's not biblically true. Duty does not mean ability. Paul says, look, I've got this struggle. God's holy. God is God. The law is perfect. It's right. It's good. I have a responsibility to meet the standard. I have a responsibility to obey the law. But I find that I fall short. And he's saying, look, there's nothing wrong with God's law. It's absolutely perfect. Everything's right with it. And again, the law continues to repeat the command uh, for a man to be holy. Be holy for I am holy, Leviticus 11. You're to be holy for I, the Lord, am holy, Leviticus 20. Again, Matthew 5, 48, Christ saying, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. First Peter 1 and 15, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy for I am holy. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the law and everything right with the law. The problem's with us. The problem's with man, with our corruption. The problem is the power of indwelling sin. Paul says it's the principle that evil is present in me. And it's that principle that evil is present in me that produces my total inability to obey God's perfect, holy, righteous law. The Bible says that we're all sinners willfully. That we're slaves of sin. Romans 3 and 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. The law comes in and it rightly confronts men who are fleshly or who are living carnally, as it says in verse 14. Men who are indwelt by sin, as it says in verses 17 and 20. But the law can't rescue man from that condition, from their natural condition. On the contrary, all the law does is it continues to come forward and reveal the depths of the division in our being, the depth 
of the division between our willingness to do which is correct, but our actual ability to do that which is correct. Again, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Does that sound like a man in conflict? If I'm doing the very thing that I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So again, the law informs us of our duty before God, but the law doesn't give us the ability to obey those duties. What the law does is it comes and says we don't match up. What the law does is it comes and it exposes us. It exposes our sinfulness. It exposes our total corruption. And again, the law comes and reveals the division between our minds, we want to do what's right, and our actions, which do the very opposite of what we know is right. So the law comes and it arouses sin. It it, it stirs the conscience to come under conviction of sin, leads us to an understanding of sin's nature and character, and a sense of sin's indwelling power over us. And again, if rightly applied, it will continue to crush us and show us our place of condemnation, helplessness, and misery before God because the law crushes. So, no matter, ultimately, if the man of Romans 7 is an unregenerate man, or does it matter if the, the man of Romans 7 is an unregenerate man? Ultimately, the answer is no. Because the law can't save an unregenerate man, right, who's in bondage to sin. The law can't save an unregenerate, an unsaved man from the penalty of sin, which is death. Does it matter whether the man of Romans 7 is indeed a Christian? And ultimately the answer to that is also no, because the law can't sanctify the Christian. The law can't set us apart from the sinfulness of sin. The law comes to the Christian and he delights in it in his inner man, yet his corrupt affections are still there, and the law can't do anything to destroy those corrupt inward affections. But the answer in Romans 7 ends up being to whoever this person might be is the same. The ultimate answer <coughs> to all men is, listen, only one person. The only one person, the perfect person, He's the answer, ultimately, to whatever side of the issue you fall on, on, on that, saved or not saved. It's God in Christ. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is the answer. Chapter 8, verse 1 is the very next verse. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what, verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending him his son, or sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
That's the key to understanding this chapter and the remainder of this chapter. The law doesn't justify. The law doesn't sanctify. The law does is it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. The law drives us to Christ so that we might see him and him alone as our only hope of deliverance from the conflict, our only hope of deliverance from this body of death, our only hope of deliverance from the corruption that oppresses us or that operates in our mind uh, as we who were once depraved, uh, dead in trespasses and sin, until by God and his goodness and his great mercy, his love pointed us to Christ, until the mercy of God came into our lives, shone Christ in our hearts and illuminated our minds, and we saw the fact that we got to quit trying because we can't match up to that perfection that drove us to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the work of the law. So again, it's the law, it's the perfection of the law that drives us to Christ because Christ is the perfect one. And we have to see ourselves as Christ as our only hope, our only help of hope of salvation, justification, sanctification, and righteousness, the only hope that we have of perfection that we need to stand in God's presence. So again, the law comes and points us to Christ. We who need to be born again, excuse me, we who need to be born from above, we who walk in newness of life, bearing fruit for God, uh, ever conscious of our sin, ever present, uh, uh, conscious of the presence of a war waging on with inside us, the answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. The the only hope we have is a greater, deeper understanding for, love for uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Now again, the reality is I just mentioned a moment ago the the, the man of Romans 7 is really a sub-point, <clears throat> but a proper understanding of him does help us understand some practical issues regarding the, the Christian life. Such as, what does the normal Christian life look like? Such as, should we expect our Christian lives to be characterized by the kind of struggle that we see here in Romans 7? Such as, how can we have victory over sin? And, and the last one, how can we live life victorious as Christians? Now, historically, there have been four main views as to the identity of the man here in Romans 7. <clears throat> James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Romans, has a, <clears throat> excuse me, a great job of kind of condensing these uh, four major views down. So I'm going to use his general outline along with some other commentators, both uh, modern and of the past, to try to help us think through these issues a little bit. So we, have, we need to kind of at least understand a theological argument. There's four main views, and I'm going to give you the views. We're going to evaluate them biblically to see which one is correct, at least from my perspective. I'll give you a hint. It's the right perspective, so you don't have to worry about it. However, I do admit right up front that godly men, and I really do mean that, godly men throughout the centuries have, uh, have disagreed on how to interpret uh, this portion of Scripture. And all I'm going to do tonight basically is start to introduce the subject. There's a lot more, uh, Lord willing, that we'll get into next time. But who's the man here in Romans 7? Well, view number one. The man of Romans 7 is unsaved. That's the first view. So the first view here historically has been, again, there's been conflict ever since we had the text. The first view of the man of Romans 7 is the Apostle Paul. This is who he was when he was unregenerate, meaning when he was not yet a Christian. And according to this view, Paul could not have said some of the things that he said about the man here in Romans 7, if he was truly a Christian. Well, what things? Well, if he was truly a Christian, this argument goes, verse 14, he wouldn't have said things like this, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. 
The willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Or verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? So how could this man be a Christian? Again, the argument goes. I mean, didn't the Apostle Paul just previously in the, in the sixth chapter describe a person who's a true Christian, chapter 6, verse 2, one who's died to sin? How can he say he's sold into bondage to sin if he's died to sin? Chapter 6, verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How could he say, verse 25, so then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin, if he's a genuine believer. Again, after all, back in chapter 6, verse 5, didn't Paul say, look, if we become united with him, with Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he is died, is freed from sin. Or a little bit further, chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart of that former teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Or verse 20 and 22, verse 20. You were slaves, or when you were slaves of sin, you were free from regard to righteousness. Verse 22. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. How can a true believer, a true Christian, who has been freed from sin, how can he say, I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin? Again, the one who said he died to sin, the one who said his old self was crucified with Christ in order that his body of sin might be done away with. The one who said he's no longer a slave of sin because he who has died is freed from sin, etc. and so forth. He's a slave of righteousness. So again, the question historically is how could this man possibly be a Christian? Verse 18 kind of seemingly continues the line of argumentation along where he says, look, there's nothing good that dwells in me. And then again, he says, qualifies it further by saying in my flesh. And if you're reading out of the NIV, NIV further complicates the issue. Thank you. Because the NIV says nothing good dwells in me that is in my sinful nature. Verse 24, a wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Well, doesn't he know who? can save him doesn't he know who can set him free i mean if he's a, a christian how can a christian not know how, how can a christian talk in terms of nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature so those are the arguments from that point of view that the man in romans 7 is an unbeliever but let's look at it a little bit carefully more, more carefully see, see if there might be any potential flaws and i'll give you a wink there might be a couple The man in Romans 7 is obviously in conflict. He's distressed by his inability to fulfill the law's just demands. He calls himself a wretched man as a result of his shortcoming, his failures. And now he's calling on someone outside of himself to deliver him. Who will set me free from this body of death? So here's the questions. Is the non-Christian ever concerned over or distressed by the fact that he can't keep God's law? Is the non-Christian distressed over his sin, over his failures to keep God's law? Does the non-Christian even believe or, or does the non-Christian even care about God's law? Or is the non-Christian one who's pretty well self-satisfied, thank you very much, pleased with their own efforts, happy with their own performance, confident? What about Paul? What about when he was Saul of Tarsus, when he was a Pharisee? What did he think of his performance? before he came to Christ 
when he was a non-Christian. Put a mark there in your Bible and turn over a couple books over to the book of Philippians. And we'll hear Paul tell us himself from his own words, his evaluation of his efforts when he was a non-Christian. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 3, pick it up. Verse 4 is really where I want to get to, but verse 3, we'll pick it up. For we, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, for we are of the true circumcision who, work, who worship in the spirit and the glory of, uh, and of spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So verse 3, he's talking about who he is now. Verse 4, he's reflecting back to who he was when he was a Pharisee. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, blameless. So Paul says, look, before he came to Christ, He said of his own performance, he had a righteousness from the law which was blameless. And if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, he far more than anybody else. So Paul wasn't concerned before he came to faith in Christ. He wasn't concerned whatsoever. Uh, uh, Rather, he was with his performance. Rather, he was quite happy with his performance. So how could a non-Christian, an unbeliever, say, I know that nothing good dwells in me, it is in my flesh for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Paul, by his own admission, before he came to Christ as a non-Christian, would have said, again, the willingness to do the right thing is present within me, and guess what? I'm doing a pretty good job of it. That's what he would have said. The righteousness that's found in the law, I got it. Found blameless. He thought very high of his own performance. So I think the first reason you have, go back to Romans chapter 7, I think the first reason that you have to re- reject uh, this that Paul's talking about himself with, when he was a non-Christian is because of how he viewed himself as a non-Christian. How he viewed his own righteousness before he came to Christ. Before he came to Christ, he was completely satisfied with his performance. That's the way all non-Christians are. I said last time, I, I believe, regarding the deceitfulness of sin... Again, sin is so powerful, it dominates and rules over, destroys every person apart from Christ. I said one of the most devastating things about the destructive aspect of sin, it's found in that ability that it has to deceive. Because sin has deceived countless numbers of individuals who are outside of the kingdom, both past and present, into thinking that their own righteousness or their own goodness will make them able to stand before a holy God. Again, that's religion around the world. Do enough of the right things, work hard enough, and you can earn your own righteousness. That's every religious system boiled down to the the, the lowest common denominator in the world, self-effort. Sin is so deceptive, it has deceived the vast majority of the world into thinking that, and sin is so deceptive into deceiving people, many who think that they are Christians now, into believing the same kind of error, that by something they do or something they do not do, that makes them a Christian able to stand before God on the day of judgment 
because they are in essence trusting in their own righteousness. While the Bible repeatedly says things like in Romans 3 and 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Verse 20, Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now I'm going to say something, you really got to listen to me here. There's not a single person on the face of the planet whoever has or ever will make themselves right before a holy God by their own effort. There's not a single person on the planet whoever has or whoever will make themselves right by their own effort. All that does, all the self-effort, all the self-trusting, the self-religiosity does is condemn a man or a woman and places them right back under the curse of the law. Because again, the Bible teaches, the law teaches, the standard is absolute perfection. To be able to stand in the presence of a holy God, you have to have absolute perfection. Not kind of close. Not 99.9% pure. You have to have 100% pure perfection. So as I told you a couple times back, I don't remember when, but you've heard the evangelistic methodology of sharing the law with somebody questions like have you ever lied have you ever stolen something have you ever lost it after somebody and that's okay as far as it goes but that's really not the question the question that everybody has to be asked is are you personally as perfect as the perfect one are you perf- personally as perfect as the perfect one the lord jesus christ then if you are not you are in a whole lot of trouble that's the standard and without that perfection You're not going to get into heaven. You're not going to get into the presence of a holy God. Therefore, as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse, Galatians 3 and 10. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by, this is the key word, all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you want to try to stand before God by your own effort, then you have to be absolutely perfect, which no man is, because the Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the standard. They fall short of the glory. They fall short of the glory of God. That's why Paul goes on in Galatians 3 and 11 and says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's a great sentence. That no one is justified by the law before God is evident. The word means clear. He says, look, everybody can see it. Nobody's perfect except for the perfect one, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the righteous man shall live by what? Faith. Right? That's why the law, I told you before, is our tutor. It drives us to the person of Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And I'm going to tell you something else. If you think you're right with God and that you're a Christian just because you quote-unquote believe in Jesus... My dear friend, you need to understand that that falls woefully short of the perfect standard also. You say, well, how is that? Well, James chapter 2, verse 19 says the devils believe and they shake. James 2 and 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Devil's got good theology. The devil believes in Jesus. I thought I just had to believe in Jesus. That's all I had to do to be saved. Didn't I say this morning that there's a whole lot of people that are messed up by, by uh, misconceptions of truth, 
misinterpretation of scripture and popular mythology of the culture. If eternal salvation is important to you, I would suggest to you that there's only one standard that you would evaluate yourself by to make sure that you match up, and it's found in this book, not in the popular Christian culture. Not what you heard on the street. It's good that you believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You need a perfection that you do not have, that I do not possess. That's why the theologians used to say we need an alien righteousness. What have we been talking about through the entire book? What's the main theme of the book of Romans? I don't know, man, you're so confusing to me. I have no idea. Okay, I'll tell you what it is, in case you forgot. The main theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith. By faith. Not by works. Not by effort. Not by trying. Not by counting beads. Not by lighting candles. Not by attending church. It's by faith. By faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. We all need an alien righteousness that we do not possess. That God grants to us on the basis of his tremendous mercy when we place our faith in the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where salvation comes from. So I'm arguing point number one under massive heading number one. This guy's not a Christian because uh, of how people look at themselves right before they came to Christ. They don't understand the reality. The second reality, the second issue under this section that this man could not have been Paul as a non-Christian is because of his view of the law of God. Again, verse 16, Paul says the law is good. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man or in my inner being. I delight in God's law. So again, ask yourself the question, does the non-Christian delight in God's law? Does the non-Christian say that God's law is good? Look over at Romans chapter 8, verse 6. He says, and Paul says in Romans 8, verse 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself, subject itself to the law of God, excuse me, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The non-believer does not delight in the law of God. The non-believer, the unbeliever, the unsaved man, the unregenerate man, he hates God's law. He hates God. He hates God, hates God's law, hates God's rules. And he refuses to subject himself to God's headship, to God's leadership, to God's rulership, to God's law. In fact, it says there in that text, he's not even able to do so. Right? He won't subject himself to the law of God. He's not even able to do so. So again, does the non-believer say that God's law is good? Well, that law that arouses sin, that law that exposes sin in his life, that law that provokes all manner of evil desire. Remember, Paul said, I wouldn't have known about covetousness until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And then the law came and said, thou shalt not covet, and it produced all kind of lust in me. I've told you that before, right? The law says, don't touch. You know, wet paint, don't touch. Uh, don't step on the grass. You weren't thinking about stepping on the grass. You weren't thinking about touching the paint, but the law comes and says, don't do those things. And there's something within us that wells within us and says, who are you to tell me? I'm going to touch you. I'm going to step on the grass because you can't tell me what to do. That's the rebellion. That's sin within us. That's what the law does. It arouses sin. Third reason why the man can't be a non-believer in the text here, or why Paul is not speaking about his pre-conversion life, is because of his use of the word I and present tense verbs that he uses. His use of the word I. Now, some people think that because 
they've already come with the preconception that the guy in Romans 7 here it, it, uh, it has to be a, 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 a they don't see this man as a saved individual they come again with a preconception that Paul is using when he uses the personal pronoun I it's some kind of literary device in order to somehow more closely identify with his audience it's interesting from verse 9 of this chapter to verse 25 the apostle uses the personal pronoun I 46 times so for those people who come and say he's really not talking about himself, the burden of proof really is in their court. Those who deny the fact that Paul's speaking about himself, although 46 times he says I, denies what's clearly obvious. To assume that Paul's using some kind of a literary device or personifying or using a personification is to suppose that he does here what he doesn't do anywhere else in any other writings. You know, when the most obvious interpretation of the text is the most obvious interpretation of the text that's probably the safe place to land just a little side note again I think I said it this morning if words mean anything and God knows how to speak he probably knows how to communicate right he probably knows how to communicate so there's 46 times the, the use of I and then this present tense thing that it occurs in verse 14 that's when it starts now go just back a little bit, verse 9, and I'll just pick up a few of them. I just want you to see past tense verbs. Verse 9. I was once alive. Past tense, right? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, past tense, sin became alive and I died, past tense. Verse 11. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment, past tense, deceived me, and through it killed me, past tense. Verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death? Again, past tense for me. May never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by the effecting of my death. Again, past tense. Through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So all those past tense verbs speak of actions, activities that have happened in the past before he came to Christ. And then there's a change here to the present tense in verse 14. You say, well, you're going to read it for a third time? Yeah, that's right. I'm going to read it for a third time. For we know, verse 14, that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, present tense, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate, present tense. Verse 16, but if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. Again, present tense. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do it, but I practice the very evil I do not want. If I am doing, again, present, the very thing I do not want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to presently do good. For I presently joyfully concur that the law is good in the inner man, but I presently see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, presently making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I presently am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, my flesh, the law of sin. It's the present tense. And he uses that at verse 14. He switches over. Now listen very carefully what the present tense means. This is hard, but you'll get it. When Paul uses the present tense, he's speaking in the present 
Okay? He's actually speaking at the time that he's writing the letter of who he is now as a Christian, not as a non-Christian. So the arguments that come out of this, that the man of chapter 7 is an unbeliever, from my humble opinion, just don't hold up under biblical examination. You say, well, is this all important? Well, I hope so, because i got like three more to go through. This is a big deal in the history of the church over understanding exactly what Paul's saying here. Second view. Second interpretation of the scripture, 14 through 25. The man of Romans 7 is a quote-unquote carnal Christian. Quote-unquote carnal Christian. This is a very popular view. Very popular view today. I spoke on this issue not too long ago. You can look it up. July 11th. A sermon entitled Dead to the Law in Christ, Part 4, taught through Romans uh, 7, 4 through 6. So since I just recently taught it, I'm not going to speak too much or a great detail, because you can always go back and listen if you'd like to. But very quickly, this interpretation, the second interpretation, the man in Romans 7, is a quote-unquote carnal Christian, is a false interpretation, because this idea of this, quote, carnal Christian, end quote, that itself is a great error. It's a modern false teaching that wrongly separates justification and sanctification into two distinct separate uh, activities by time, rather than one simultaneous reality for the true believer. Once we are saved, declared just by the God of the universe, no condemnation, no longer guilty, we're also declared positively righteous, and the process of, the conform, of us being conformed to the image of Christ begins, which is something that God said he's going to complete all the way to the end. So while justification is a forensic or legal declaration, the two are not separated. It, it's one followed by the other. They're simultaneous realities for the believer. Now this teaching of the so-called carnal Christian, again, I told you, it is a relatively new teaching. It came about about a little over 100 years ago or so. It's very popular in the modern culture. It was popularized by uh, Lewis Perry Schaefer in 1918 in his book entitled He That Is Sinful. It was made even more acceptable to the masses of people, this uh, teaching by uh, 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 Schaefer's friend C.I. Schofield in a certain section of his notes in the Schofield Reference Bible. It's probably most popularly uh, seen uh, as it's taught uh, in a series of books and tracts uh, by Campus Crusade uh, for Christ. Uh, I don't think they call themselves that anymore. They call themselves crew, right, because we don't want to get into crusades because that's not nice to people. And so now crew uh, publishes th this material and it promotes this so-called carnal Christianity. And, and you've seen it, I'm sure. It's the little tract that's got three circles on the page and divides men up into three categories. Category number one, the first circle, the unregenerate man, the natural man, the unsaved man. He is self on the throne. So there's a circle, there's a little chair there and Self is on the throne, and chaos uh, is uh, all of his life. Number two, the so-called quote-unquote carnal Christian, that is a Christian who still has self on the throne. Christ is in the circle of his life somewhere. He's in the mix, but he's not in charge, so the person's life's still in chaos. And, and the only difference between the natural man and the carnal person, that is Christ, is someplace in the picture, but his life hasn't changed. And then the third circle, you have the spiritual Christian, where self is off the throne, Christ is on the, on the throne, and the person's life is, is in order. 
All of this also falls under the category of what is popularly known as no lordship salvation. Again, an erroneous teaching that a lot of people promote that when you get saved, Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord. Whereas the Bible says, Acts 2 and 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen, men don't get to do what God has already done. God has already made himself, made the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of the Lord Jesus, both Lord and Christ, because that's who he is. And, and the Bible calls sinners to repent and by faith follow Christ, to submit to Christ, to humble themselves to the authority of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is, that's who he is, he, he's the Lord. So this erroneous teaching is out there, it's in the popular culture, it's actually promoted very much by a large popular theological seminary in the great state of Texas in a big city in the middle of that state called Dallas. But I won't tell you who it is. But the question is irrelevant of how popular it is, is it biblical? This teaching divides humanity into three classes. Saved, those who are spiritual, and those who are somewhere in the middle, so-called carnal Christians. Whereas you look at the Bible, it only produces, only promotes two classes of individuals. Saved and those who are not saved. The saved man is the one who produces, bears fruit for God. The unsaved man are those who are bearing fruit for death. Now, I don't want to seem overly dramatic. <laughs> You're kidding me. No, I really don't. I don't want to seem overly dramatic or unkind, but it really is a damning doctrine. It's a damning doctrine that allows us for two classes of Christianity. It's a false teaching that allows a man or a woman to be deceived into thinking that they're headed for heaven just because they've said some kind of prayer, they, they believe in Jesus, they're baptized, whatever, uh, walked an aisle, whatever. When in reality, people who just only make a verbal profession of faith in Christ without being regenerated, and that's really the key word, without being regenerated, without showing any signs of spiritual conversion, the fact that they really have indeed been born again, are, are really not headed for heaven, they're headed for hell. Because the Bible doesn't know any classification of this middle category. A man is either saved or he's not saved. A man is either bearing fruit for death or uh, he's bearing fruit for God. Think back in the mornings, if you've been with us, in, in John chapter 3, Christ and Nicodemus. Christ comes to Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born from above. He did not say to Nicodemus... Nicodemus, why don't you come partway out? Why don't you become partially birthed? Become a quote-unquote carnal Christian, and then perhaps one day you might see it fit to make me your Lord. And then that day you can come all the way. Jesus Christ didn't say that. And you think I speak crazy terms, I know that, but I've actually heard people say something very much along those lines. The problem with this individual is he's a partially birthed Christian, to which, to be your surprise, in the in the <laughs> In the meeting we're in, when somebody said that to me, do you think I might have come out of my chair? Well, just a little bit. Well, give me that category. Give me a verse where you get that one from. And it had the reference to do with a man who is in great sin, doing great harm to his family. And versus the leadership of the church just saying, he's a sinner, we need to call him on his sin, and if he doesn't repent, put him out. Well, he's a partially birth Christian. 
My head just about exploded. Look back at chapter 7, verse 4 of the book of Romans. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. Here's why, that, ye might, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we are in the flesh, again, apart from Christ, when we weren't saved, when we are unredeemed, when we are in opposition to God, he says the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, here's a change. We have been released from the law, having died to that which we are bound, so that we serve in newness of life, newness of spirit, not an oldness of letter. Look over to chapter, chapter 8 again, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, things of the sp <coughs> spirit. Again, there's only two categories. For the mindset on the flesh is death, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so, so those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Here it is, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There are only two categories of men biblically. In the flesh or in the spirit. The natural man, who is spiritual, the unsaved man who is not saved, right? Now, I said I wasn't going to start teaching on the issue, and I'm finding myself starting to teach on the issue. So I'm going to stop right there, maybe. And, and you can go back and listen more fully to that sermon on the, on the 11th, 7-11, if you want to. But it's vital for us to understand, to have a biblical understanding of what it means to be saved, of what biblical salvation looks like. And again, I think this modern doctrine, this false modern doctrine of the so-called carnal Christian attacks the nature of salvation. Again, it's a denial of the doctrine of regeneration. It's a denial of the doctrine of our vital union with the person of Jesus Christ. That the true believer has been born again, that the true believer is now in union with the Savior, the living Savior. To say it's okay for a man to be saved and then live his life like the devil or like an unbeliever is really anathema. Do genuine believers sin? Of course. But a genuine believer does what? genuine believer hates their sin a genuine believer hates their sin it doesn't live in this kind of mid-world carnally or fleshly men aren't really concerned about that sin aren't really hateful of that sin listen first john 3 and 10 by this the children by this the children of god and the children of the devil are obvious anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from god i didn't write that it's what it says First John 3 and 10. Could we fall into sin? Yeah. The sinners, the Christians sin? Yes. Do Christians hate their sin? Absolutely. A genuine believer, again, being conformed, the process of sanctification, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, looks more and more like Christ every day because they're indwelt by, controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit. They walk in newness of life. So true saving faith produces, again, a person who produces fruit for God and looks like his savior and again no matter how popular the teaching might be it doesn't match up to the biblical standard second corinthians 5 17 I've, I've mentioned hundreds of times from this pulpit therefore if any man is in christ he is what a new creation right a new creature old things pass away new things come first corinthians chapter 6 i was talking to somebody this morning about this very issue uh, in, in a very difficult place that a pastor is working in a very difficult city paul walked in what did he walk in with he had nothing but the word of God. Some of the greatest words 
and the whole book of 1 Corinthians is to the church of God at Corinth. You say, how is that? Because I read chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminates or homosexuals or thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. To the church of God at Corinth, Paul brought the gospel, and the gospel changed the lives of the people because genuine saving faith changes people's lives. Genuine saving faith transforms a person from the inside out because genuine saving faith regenerates a man. Takes us who he used to be when we were dead in trespasses and sins and makes us alive together with God in Christ. Again, is it possible for a, a genuinely saved believer to sin? Sure, I guess to walk in a period of sin for a portion of time, but that believer always comes back because that believer always hates their sin. The so-called category of the carnal Christian, he's indifferent to his sin. The true believer is grieved over his sin, heartbroken over his sin. Desperately, he wants to please his Lord and Savior who's transformed and changed him and laid down his life for him. He wants to be freed from any sin that brings reproach upon the name of Christ. And part of this error, again, of the so-called carnal Christian is to allow a man to call Christ his Savior and to live in absolute disobedience to him because he, up to that point, has not accepted Jesus, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus as Lord. And I would suggest to you that's to affirm the worship of a false Christ. Because the biblical Christ, it says of him in Hebrews 5 and 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him. The source of eternal salvation. No salvation for the disobedient. For those who obey the Savior. For those who obey Christ. So it's not a biblical doctrine. It's a dangerous doctrine. And I think it affirms people in their lostness. It denies the doctrine of regeneration. It fools people into believing that they're saved when they're not saved. And again, I think it's just another manifestation of the deceitfulness of sin. And again, one of Satan's most disturbing abilities is to deceive people into thinking they're saved when they're not. And then come to that fateful day uh, of expecting to hear, uh, enter into my kingdom, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. But then to actually hear the voice of the Savior, it says, I never knew you, depart from me. Uh, Matthew 7. I mean, Matthew 7 ought to run chills up anybody's spine. And for to hear, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, to hear those words is to listen to have lived a life having been deceived, and now it's too late. Now it's too late. So all that to say the possibility of the interpretation here of Romans 7 being the so-called carnal Christian, we're going to reject that one outright because that category does not exist biblically. And for those of you who think I'm too hard, I'm not being too hard. When the doctor told me I have got cancer, I'm going to cut it out. We're going to have a, a surgery. We're going to have a long time of chemotherapy. He wasn't being unkind to me. He was being truthful. You do not want to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. You don't want to be raising your hand going, but Lord, Lord, I did all these things for you. When I'm harsh... I hear the tone police coming out, as it were. Okay, we don't like the way you said that. You're not nice. Oh, well, why don't you just go on your way to hell and 
I'll try to say that as nicely as I can because, you know, I mean, it's crazy talk. But we got the tone police everywhere. We've got to say things nice. We can't be direct. I want someone who's direct with me. This is the plan. You got a problem. We're going to cut it out. We're going to take care of it. Right? I don't need niceness. I need truth. We need truth. Did I say that this morning? If you were awake this morning? About we need hard preaching, biblical preaching? Because it, it crushes our flesh. It crushes our pride. It humbles us under the word of God. You want niceness, go anywhere you want. Don't come here. I mean, I'm not trying to be unnice. I'm not trying to be uh, uh, purposely offensive. It's not my goal. But if you want the guy with the helium and the clown suits and the clown shoes and the cotton candy, they're everywhere. You can go get entertained all you want. If you want hard, soul-confronting, biblical truth that transforms you, because that's the only way that we are transformed is by the hearing of the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You sit out of the biblical preaching. And again, whatever you hear, I listen to it all week. So don't tell me how much you don't want to hear me. I don't want to hear me all week long before you even showed up in the room. Right? I heard it all week long. Third view. Just to give you a little bit of encouragement, this is the last one I'll do. All right? Third view here is the man in Romans 7. is He's a man under sin, uh, under conviction of sin. Now, this is kind of somewhere in the middle. He's a man under conviction of sin. He, he takes the things that Paul says, and he says, well, look, he can't be really saying, he's not really saying the words of an unregenerate man, nor can they really be a, words of a genuinely saved man. Unsaved man is not going to speak favorably of the way Paul does about God's law because he's in rebellion against both God and God's law. However, the saved man would never speak in such a defeated manner. He wouldn't cry out for deliverance because he already is saved from the power of sin through the work of Christ. So maybe this guy is in the middle someplace. Maybe he's under conviction of sin. Maybe he's been awakened by the law to his personal sinfulness, to his inability, but he's not been directed by the Holy Spirit to the person of Jesus Christ for that deliverance. That's why he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? So how do you deal with that kind of interpretation? Well, I'm going to tell you, it has some merit. And I'm going to tell you this, it's been put forth by a lot of very sound biblical scholars. However, it also doesn't take into consideration the change from the past tense verbs in the first 13 verses to the present tense verbs in verse 14 and so on. And again, according to this view that this guy is a man under conviction, uh, they would say those present tense verbs are really Paul speaking in the past. I'm not sure exactly how you do that linguistically. It's been suggested that this section of Scripture concerns uh, the time in the apostle's life when he was under conviction of sin, probably at the time uh, of the martyrdom of uh, Stephen that he was a part of and the role that he played in that. But again, what do you do with the present tense verbs? And, and some people will come along and say, well, that's not important. And, and I, I say, well, I, I don't know how you can do that. And is it true that the man in Romans 7, under the conviction view here, doesn't know who can deliver him? Because as soon as he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Immediately he gives the answer in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So is there a separation of time between 24 and 25? A big time gap he doesn't know, and then somewhere down the road he, he comes to understand verse 25. I don't see anything in the 
in the text that would suggest that. So I'm going to most humbly reject this view that the man is under conviction of sin. The final view, and I'm just going to give you the heading, is that the man here in Romans 7 is a mature spiritual believer. Now listen, I'm going to give you the view that it's the, the mature spiritual believer. But the history of the church says most of the early church, most of the early church fathers in this section of scripture went with view number one. They thought it was an unregenerate man. Some big named people, Augustine, for example, until he matured, until he continued to study his Bible, then he changed his view. Then he came to an understanding that this referred to a Christian. That was the interpretation that was accepted by almost all the reformers. Martin Luther, in his classic statement on this view of this section, represents the believer with this phraseology, civil justice ec peccator. And all that means is that the believer is one who is at the same time justified and a sinner. Simple justice act peccator. He's this both. Now again, the reformers saw justification as a forensic act, again, a legal declaration of a believer's status before God. But just because the believer is declared or justified righteous by the righteous one doesn't mean that the believer is removed from the realm and the influence of sin. So again, as long as a believer is in his earthly body, there's going to be a struggle with sin. There's going to be a perfect, a, a, a failed perfection to perfectly obey the will of God because indwelling sin is such a powerful enemy. So this is the way I think we should interpret this portion of Scripture. Verses 17 through 25 is just nothing more than the normal Christian experience of a mature believer. And Paul is writing as a mature spiritual believer describing the continual conflict with sin that he and that we all experience on a daily level. Every day, is it not? Every day is a conflict with sin. Every day is a battle with sin. Every day we have a desire to obey God, but then the flesh rises up and, and it wages war against our godly desires. So here's Paul speaking from personal experience, from his inner conflict. Again, he's being pulled in one direction, then another direction. There's a battle, it's a conflict, it's real, it's intense. And what Paul does is he deals honestly. He, he deals honestly, he measures himself against God's perfect standard of of perfection and righteousness, and he sees on a daily basis how far he falls short of the standard. And the closer that he gets to God, the more he sees his sin. Therefore, he comes to the realization that nothing good dwells in his flesh. He says the desire to do good is present, but the reality is not there. There's a war that is absolute raging within him. And again, he comes to the conclusion that his hope, his only hope, your only hope, my only hope, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's where this conflict is settled. Right? He, he's speaking again of the issue that we all deal with. And again, he's going to show us as we continue to unfold the text that Jesus Christ is the answer from our problem, from this conflict, from this battle with our flesh. It's not the law. It's not do this, don't do that. That's not the answer. The answer is Christ. And it's the work of the person of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within the believer who points us to the person of Christ. And as we get to chapter 8, Paul's going to discuss that in detail. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working our life, working in our lives that again drives us to the person of Christ. Amen? Christ is our answer. Christ is your only hope. Now again, that's all introduction, right? And I didn't get through all the introduction, but Lord willing, we can come back and start working our way uh, through the rest of it uh, next time. All right? 
Let's pray. Our Father, God, we're thankful for the wonderful truths that you have left for us uh, here in the room, or uh, in, in your text. We're thankful for um, the answer to all of our life's problems is the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to have a greater, deeper, more biblically accurate understanding and love for Christ. That's our prayer before you this hour. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.